Welcome to Middle East PolicyCast, episode 71 for July 10, 2020. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. What factors will shape Israeli thinking on annexing portions of the West Bank? How might such a move affect Israeli relations with the Palestinian Authority, with neighboring Arab states, and with the United States? And how likely is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to go forward with annexation at this time? Faced with listening to what the settlers want, which are part of his base, versus veering from Trump, if Trump says, I don't want to deal with this now, it's over for now. It's, it's deferred. The PA is taking action that will show Israel that collapse is actually a possibility. And that by refusing to engage in some of the civilian components of the relation, refusing to receive the, some of the tax clearances, etc. It's showing Israel that annexation, it's trying to send a message that annexation is uh, something that might stabilize, destabilize not only the security situation, but the whole political architecture. One of the arguments for a strong U.S. and active U.S. presence in the Middle East has always been about the U.S.-Israel strategic partnership. As all of these trends converge, and based on what happens in the context of annexation, I think that they could merge in a way that, again, undermines or erodes not only the the U.S.-Israel relationship, but debates the tools and the policies and the programs that keep it vibrant and keep it moving going forward. Annexation is a risk. No matter how you slice it, it is a risk. And Bibi Netanyahu, while he is someone when it comes to domestic politics, he's really a no-holds-barred politician, that's not the way he's approached national security issues. Those were the voices of Institute scholars David Mikovsky, Khraith Alamari, Dana Struhl, and Ambassador Dennis Ross. They spoke at a June 23rd virtual policy forum, moderated by Institute Executive Director Robert Satloff. We'll hear their full conversation about scenarios and implications of West Bank annexation after this. This is Anna Borshevskaya, the Ira Weiner Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. I'm Rob Satloff, the director of the Institute, and I'm delighted to host today's event, um, looking at potential scenarios um, for Israeli annexation of West Bank territory and the implications thereof. Um, This is, of course, um, a hot uh, political and strategic topic. It has been occupying the attention of uh, Israeli leaders, of Arab leaders, of U.S. diplomats, um, and of many people on both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, There's a lot to discuss today. Um, We have uh, some in-depth looks at potential scenarios, uh, the ramifications of some of these scenarios, and and the political reverberations um, that will be felt um, in this country and around the Middle East. Um, I have four outstanding colleagues who are going to be making uh, brief remarks this morning, after which we will turn to all of the participants, whether you're on our Zoom link or our Facebook Live or the Institute's own website. Um, I myself have had my own uh, two cents on this issue. Um, I hope you've uh, had a chance to take a look at an essay I wrote uh, called Wrestling with Annexation, which you can find on the Washington Institute's website. Uh, But having had my two cents, I'm now going to give two cents each to David Mikovsky, 
Rachel Omeri, Dana Struhl, and Dennis Ross. Um, uh, let me just say a word very briefly about each of my colleagues. Um, David is the director of the Institute's program on Arab-Israel relations. Um, he has um, years of practical experience looking at uh, Middle East peacemaking, both as an outside observer and an inside participant from his service in the State Department's Middle East peace team in the past administration. Um, David is the grand conductor of the Institute's Settlements and Solutions website, which takes a deep dive look at the on the ground situation in the West Bank and will provide um, also uh, options to take a look at um, uh, uh, annexation scenarios um, as you look at uh, what we have on our websites. After David uh, makes remarks, we'll turn to Rachel Omeri. Uh, Rachel is a senior fellow at the Institute, um, uh, brings um, decades of experience um, within and observing of Palestinian politics, was a PLO negotiator um, on the peace team um, that helped negotiate uh, agreements earlier on in the Oslo process. Very delighted to have him as a colleague. Speaking third will be Dana Struhl. Dana joined the Institute um, uh, about a year and a half ago after five years service in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, professional staff member, um, where she was the senior authority um, uh, on Middle East issues on the Democratic side. Um, Dana also has experience in the, in the executive branch um, uh, in the Pentagon. Um, uh, earlier in the past administration. And she will give an inside look at some of the political look um, uh, observations that uh, people um, here in the United States on both sides of the aisle are having uh, toward the prospect of annexation. And then batting cleanup will be Dennis Ross, who of course brings more than a quarter century experience um, of Middle East peacemaking to his role as the Institute's counselor and Davidson Distinguished Fellow. Uh, so um, with those brief opening words, I'm delighted to turn the program over to my colleague, David Makovsky. David. So I thought I would just map out uh, the Israeli debate as I see it, who's engaged and who is not engaged. Sometimes the story is not what happens, but what doesn't happen. And I think it's, uh, it is first to say who's not engaged. And that's the public at large. Uh, sometimes seems a bit uh, rather indifferent. Uh, a poll by Channel 12, it's the leading network, uh, most watched TV network, uh, said only 4% of Israelis say this is their top priority. Now, it's a tough uh, environment out there with corona and the economic implications of corona, of course, but you would think the number would be higher uh, than 4% if this was really something that people were passionate about. Um, I watch two primetime networks, uh, newscasts every night, uh, every day. Uh, being at home more now. And uh, I see that the whole annexation debate does not usually begin until 25 minutes into the network uh, broadcast on either network. There's hardly any rallies. Another sign, of course, Corona doesn't make it easier, but uh, you don't sense the passion. Yes, there's a report by the respected Israel Democracy Institute uh, that 50% uh, of res respondents say, yes, uh, they're for it. If you took uh, those Israeli Jews, 57. Uh, but then 60% says they expect a third intifada, uh, a third Palestinian uprising. But then the numbers drop when you start saying, yeah, but if there's a trade-off between this and closer ties with Jordan, the numbers drop. And you see this with other issues. So long as there's not a map um, I, and people don't know the trade-offs, I think these numbers seem to me a bit a bit uh, artificially high, 
but I'm looking for the passion. And of course, the uncertainties abound, and that doesn't help the engagement school. There's no map that's agreed upon. There's no date, even though July 1st is supposedly the benchmark uh, target date, but that seems to, to be coming and going. The Justice Ministry reportedly doesn't have the legal rationale together. The military, it's hard for them to do planning without a map. It was just reported yesterday that Benny Gantz, the defense minister, has asked three former generals to have what they call the minhela at the administration to deal with this issue, and three uh, retired generals have refused uh, to do so. They would be doing the technical assessment, not the whole thing, but still. So I think there's uh, the lack of the uncertainties abounding means that uh, has, has not helped the engagement school. So who is engaged in this debate in Israel? I would say there's three broad groups. One is what I would call the national security community. And I don't just mean this in terms of the current national security community, but retirees and people like that. Second are obviously the people that might have the most at stake are the settlers themselves. And third is a, a part of the a political class. So I'll just, I wanna tick this off really quickly because I, I wanna keep to my time. The national security committee, community these are retired generals. We see them in writing up ads, the commanders for Israel, there's like 300 of them. Uh, and that what's common to all of them is that they just say there's no strategic advantage for Israel. There's strategic disadvantages. And they, they basically sent around the same themes. Uh, some talk about, does it lead to the collapse of the PA? I'm sure we'll discuss this and Ray and, and others will talk about it. And if it does lead to the collapse of the policy authority, how, what is this going to cost Israel economically to directly uh, control the West Bank? Everyone says it's billions of shekels um, and, and even dollars. Uh, second, you'll, we'll have a discussion about does it inflame ties with Jordan? Does it lead to a sense that this is the alternative homeland and a fear that Palestinians, if they don't see a future, they will migrate eastward? What does that mean for that stability? Then there's a third group of the national security community says this is a big distraction from the Iran debate. That was supposed to be the number one issue. And then there's a question, what does this mean for ties with the Arab world? Uh, we saw for the first time a, a, a Gulf official, the uh, person who's a confidant of, the, uh, of MBZ uh, in the Emirates, Mohammed bin Zayed, the ambassador here in Washington, Yosef al -Taiba. I don't think he's threatening Israel, but he's warning Israel, you can't have it both ways, normalization, and annexation. Uh, but he wrote it in a, in a very constructive way about how they want closer ties with Israel. You feel that the under the cover stuff, under the table stuff on, on, on Iran, on technology will continue, but not the overt part. And I think he was warning about that. Then there's the whole legitimacy cluster. How does this come at the time that the ICC, the International Criminal Court judges are deciding whether to give the prosecutor general jurisdiction in the West Bank? Then there's the issue of the EU trading partner. Uh, being that Israel's largest trading partner. Maybe Israel's support in Eastern Europe and with even Greece and Cyprus over the gas means there's no sweeping sanctions. But as the German foreign minister apparently told his Israeli interlocutors, when we hear the word annexation, we think of Crimea. And Crimea is something where there is uh, sanctions. Uh, but you can say, well, it can't be negative sanctions, maybe positive sanctions. Israel likes all this high-tech community uh, to get hundreds of millions of euros, where Israel's part of the science community of the Euro, uh, what's been called Europe 2020, and now it's going to be called Europe Horizon. So there, there's that cluster. And there was, of course, the American bipartisanship issue that we've written about here at the Washington Institute. 
Uh, and what happens if there's a change in government in November? What does that mean also for Security Council votes if the U.S. Uh, withdraws its recognition? And then the, the eighth point that you see, and Dennis and I write about this in our book, and our book is coming out in Hebrew in a couple of weeks. What does this mean for a one-state reality if there is not two states? Um, so, I mean, this is kind of the, the range of arguments in the national security community that comes out. I'd say those eight, there might be others. The second broad uh, group that's engaged in this debate are the settlers. And that's obvious maybe, but I think it's fascinating to look at the split among them uh, and kind of where you stand is where you sit. If you look at the block settlers, the mayors, the heads of the regional councils in the block areas uh, where most of the settlers live, 76% of them live within the barrier, um, that, that they are basically say, say yes to Trump and say thank you very much because their main goal is to be annexed in Israel. The, the people who are opposing Netanyahu from the right are uh, the non-block settlers and including the leader of the settler movement. And they are basically saying, um, hey, you know, you, we're supposed to say thank you over 30%, but the Trump plan says that Israel should yield 70%. You know, even if a Palestinian state doesn't happen tomorrow, Ambassador Friedman says until when the Palestinians become Canadians, um, you know, we don't want to sign on to that. And that's a Faustian bargain. And how did this fracturing happen? Uh, well, I've been writing about this for years, about that the settler movement is not a monolith, but I think it's that Netanyahu has never laid the kind of the groundwork intellectually for this idea of territorial compromise. And, um, and now you're seeing the results, the fracturing. But there's something that's inconsistent that doesn't really get a lot of media attention, but I think should, is you can't have it both ways. You can't have your ambassador and diplomats in Washington go to Capitol Hill and say how this will endorse realism uh, and make a, a Palestinian state more realistic uh, you know, and, and more likely. And then have all your lieutenants, basically, or, or some of the key ones, Mickey Zohar, Sakhia Negbi, Zev Elkin, Ofer Kunis. These are all very pro-BB people. And they are all saying publicly, there will never be a Palestinian state. We're never going to agree to Knesset to pass something about a Palestinian state. So you're talking, you know, Israel always says uh, about the Palestinians, we'll believe what they say in Arabic, not what they say in English. This is something now that's happening to Israel that has to be uh, addressed. Um, so I think there has to be, you know, one message, uh, but that that has led so far to a fracturing as uh, the settlers are not in one place. The final point I'll make is the political class itself. And here, I just wanna look at blue-white. Now you can say, look, David, this, there's an overlay here. There's a broader context. Uh, this is the first real unity government with the idea of rotation since 1984 to 1988. Those governments are never picnics. They're always gonna be finger pointing, but this one is even harder because there's a disparity of 52 to 19 in seats. So parity in, in, uh, is the concept, but disparity is, is the reality in terms of the seat distribution where blue and white has fewer. So how does that play itself out? And by the way, it comes on the backdrop of the fact that Netanyahu has had a monopoly essentially for the most part for the last 11 years in uh, being the only prime minister. And now it's power sharing. So how real is that? And that's kind of a backdrop for the, the back and forth. Look, I think it's ironic. The only people right now really talking about both sides of the Trump plan are blue and white. 
while Netanyahu has talked about Trump as his best friend, he's totally not talking about the 70% of the land that would be yielded. The people only talking about that are Gantz and Ashkenazi saying, hey, if you're going to do this, you have to talk about the full Trump plan. It's not a la carte. Um, but I think that, that basically where blue and white has been helped has been by the division within the Trump administration, that you have different schools there. You have an ideological school, of course, championed by David Friedman, the U.S. ambassador to Israel. You have a, a kind of a strategic school articulated by Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state, who is telling diplomats that the regional downsides of this very quietly, but, but his public stance is this is an Israeli decision. And then you have Jared Kushner, who seems to be looking at it through a political lens. And the net effect of these differing schools is so far a convergence on the idea that there has to be an Israeli consensus. And only then will we deal with them. We're not dealing with them until there is that consensus. Uh, so that has actually empowered the Gantz and Ashkenazi school because that wing, because they've been always been told in the media they don't count, that Bibi has enough votes without them. What we're seeing is Bibi cannot really pass this in the Knesset, the full Trump plan, because there are not enough votes in the Likud to talk about the Palestinian state part of it. So he's going to avoid, I think he's going to try to avoid a Knesset vote completely and certainly avoid anything to do with the Trump plan. Even if he could get support for annexation from Lieberman, uh, you know, Bennett uh, and others from the outside, uh, but not for the whole plan. Um, so blue and white has been bolstered by really the support of the Trump administration, kind of saying you're key to the consensus. A big X factor for me is something that is not yet filtered into the political debate. And maybe that is also a sequencing part. And that is the question of does um, the quiet assessments of the Shin Bet led by Nadav Agarman, who sees a lot of downside to this, and it's clear from people in the room with him, uh, does his view get more public expression? I don't expect the, the Shin Bet to speak publicly because the nature of it is that they're a secret organization. But the more their views are filtered in the public discourse, I think that will help Blue White. And, and so my only final question for them is, are they, are they going to come up with a minimal annexation and then meet the BB somewhere in the middle? People around Gantz and Ashkenazi tell me they don't feel this pressure. Uh, they actually feel that standing up to Bibi is, is even electorally useful to them. And uh, they don't feel that they have to join the annexation debate. Uh, but it's unclear. Others say, no, they don't want to be branded leftists. Other people are close to them. And, and just to conclude, I, I, I just, you know, I, I worry about the role of more extreme voices in the Middle East impacting more moderate voices. I know I had a very influential uh, senior Arab diplomat say to me, look, David, don't, don't kid yourself. When the media spin machine of Iran, Qatar, and Turkey, you know, slam annexation that puts pressure on the rest of the Arab world, that is not as exercised about this issue, not to be viewed as a sellout. So there is a certain role of the extremists in putting moderates on the defensive. And that's what's happening, I think, and I, I hope it doesn't happen in Israel. But anyway, I'll stop here. I want to keep the timetable. But I think that's a basic mapping. The public broadly not engaged, but the three different subgroups that are engaged more passionately is the national security community, the settlers, and part of the political class. And we'll see how it unfolds. And I look forward uh, to discussion. Happy to discuss maps and, and more deep dives at that point. Thank you very much, Rob.
Very good. Excellent. Thank you very much, David. Um, so we'll turn now to Raithel Omari. Raith, the microphone is yours. All right. Thank you, Rob. I'm going to focus on uh, some of the Arab dynamics and the expected Arab reactions uh, to annexations, both in the build-up and uh, if it were to happen. Um, I would focus on the three act, uh, main arenas, uh, the Palestinian arena, Jordan, and uh, maybe a few words in the end if I have time about the Gulf. With the three uh, arenas, there's actually one overarching theme. I think all of the actors and other Arab actors are trying to balance, on the one hand, making a meaningful, impactful action to impact the possibility of uh, uh, annexation and if it happens, incur cost on the annexation. But at the same time, they're trying to balance that with preserving some of the key strategic interests that they have, both in the relationship with Israel, but in the wider kind of uh, peace process uh, environment. To start with the Palestinians, we can't actually talk, we cannot talk about a Palestinian position. There are two Palestinian positions. There's the Palestinian Authority and there's Hamas, and they will interact. The Palestinian uh, Authority is uh, obviously in a dilemma. Annexation will uh, threaten its very political raison d'etre. It was supposed to be a transitional authority towards statehood. And uh, there's a belief that the, two, that the annexation will kill a two-state solution. So what the PA is trying to do is to basically uh, create a sense of crisis towards Israel and create a sense that there is a cost that will come. The PA has a reputation of uh, doing a lot of statements, but no, no action. And they want to seem more credible. And to this regard, they are going to take three kinds of, uh, they're already taking three uh, kinds of measures. One is to increase the security cost for Israel. And this is done by ending security cooperation. Security cooperation has been uh, uh, suspended for the time being. The PA continues to actually uh, uh, work against terror. We continue to see them working against Hamas, terror infrastructure. They continue to fulfill some of the functions that were there in security cooperation. Recently, some Israelis strayed into Area A. They were returned uh, to Israel via the, via the ICRC. So some of these uh, things will continue. But acting, but uh, suspending security cooperation will force Israel to send additional security resources into the West Bank. And it runs the risk as well of increasing friction between Palestinians and Israeli security forces. Recently, for example, uh, Israel entered into some of the outskirts of Ramallah. We can expect to see more of these things. And these will increase friction between the Palestinian public and uh, the uh, Israeli security forces. There is obviously a risk here that this will spin out of control. On the civilian side as well, the Palestinian Authority is trying to maybe um, give Israel a glimpse of the abyss. David mentioned how there is concern that the PA might collapse. The PA is taking action that will show Israel that collapse is actually a possibility. And that by refusing to engage in some of the civilian uh, components of the relation, refusing to receive the, some of the tax clearances, etc., it's showing Israel that annexation is trying to send a message that annexation is uh, something that might stabilize, destabilize not only the security situation, but the whole political architecture. This is also risky for the PA. It's risky because the PA might actually miscalculate. Part of the calculation of the PA is that it will stop taking money from Israel. It will, uh, therefore, part of this money at least will be compensated by outside actors, Arabs, Europeans, etc. This has not been forthcoming. 
actually yesterday the Palestinian representative in the Arab League was bemoaning the fact that the Arabs have not come in to uh, to send this uh, to fill this gap. So the Palestinian Authority is sending this message, hoping that there will be a savior. But there is a real risk given everything that's happening, whether it's the competing priorities post-COVID, etc., that this might not be forthcoming, and therefore this threat might become a reality. And finally, obviously, the PA will engage in the traditional uh, diplomacy, UN, Arab League, etc. The one difference here is that we will see probably a more proactive uh, approach or reach out to Europe to recognize the Palestinian state. Uh, there might be some responsiveness in some European capitals, but I don't see this yet as a European kind of uh, momentum. For Hamas, actually, it's a very different picture. For Hamas, uh, annexation is almost, I don't want to say an opportunity, but certainly it, it, it does create certain um, you know, openings for them. For Hamas, ultimately, uh, politically speaking, annexation, and it's already happening, annexation is being presented as uh, proof positive that uh, Oslo and the whole negotiation approach and the whole two-state solution approach has failed. A couple of days ago, a senior Hamas official said exactly that. The PA is, has overlived its uh, usefulness. It's time for it to step out of the way. So we can expect to see more and more of this kind of political messaging. Um, that's one. Two, for Hamas as well, it's an opportunity to stabilize. Now, Hamas is not interested in escalation in Gaza. I suspect Hamas will, will start seeing a return to some of the border tensions and escalations, control escalations, but Hamas is not interested in... in uh, in an uncontrolled escalation in Gaza. But Hamas is very interested in uh, a collapse of the security situation in the West Bank, and it will do that, both uh, through conducting terror, which it has continued to do and will do now in a more uh, um, proactive and a more energetic way, but also by pushing the Palestinian uh, public to take action. Yesterday, a senior Hamas official member of the Politburo was calling on the security, Palestinian PA security officials to basically not be collaborators. We can expect to see more of this. And finally, what Hamas will try to do, and again, we started seeing uh, you know, uh, inklings of this, they will try to present themselves politically or diplomatically as the uh, alternative address to the PA. Um, Hamas leader Ismail Haniya, who now lives in Qatar, has sent letters to 40 Arab and uh, Muslim leaders calling for an Arab summit. One can imagine uh, a, a reconvening of the Kuala Lumpur Forum of Qatar, Turkey, Iran, some of the other states that will invite Hamas as a replacement of the PLO. So Hamas sees these kinds of uh, opportunities, but it will try to do it in a way that does not threaten its own rule in Gaza. To move from the Palestinians to the Jordanians, for Jordan, the issue of annexation is not simply an issue of messaging. It is an issue that touches on core national security and political uh, interests. In terms of national security, the Palestinian Jordanians see the two-state solution as a strategic interest for Jordan. Jordan and the Palestinian issue have been intertwined for a very long time, and a two-state solution is seen by Jordanian leadership as something that will provide closure to this. A collapse of a two-state solution is seen as something that will reopen the Pandora's box, whether it is Jordan is Palestine, whether it's destabilizing Jordan's uh, uh, Western Front, all of these kinds of risks. So there is a real uh, deep security, uh, national security uh, issue here, but also there's a political issue. Um, for Jordan, there is wall-to-wall Ref, uh, Jordanian public, wall-to-wall -wall, uh, refusal of this. And unlike what was sometimes here, it's not only the Palestinian Jordanians. Much of the actually very um, robust uh, anti-annexation messaging is coming from what one would call East Bankers, because there is a sense that annexation might uh, um, unsettle the balance uh, in that uh, country. 
all of the political parties, from the Muslim Brotherhood to uh, the Ba'athists to the leftists, are uh, against it, as the public is against it. All opinion polls uh, show that. It will make it very difficult for the king then to balance the proactive action that he will take with maintaining some of the real strategic interests that Jordan have in maintaining the peace treaty and in maintaining the relations with Israel. And here we can talk about three strategic interests that will constrain Jordan's action. One is security relations with Israel. This is key for Jordan in many, many different ways, whether it's intelligence or uh, military aspects. Um, the second is some of the civilian uh, strategic relationships on issues like water and more recently with the Jordan-Israel gas uh, agreement. These are issues which are civilian, but of a, of a strategic nature for the stability uh, of the kingdom. And the third constraint is Jordan-U.S. Uh, relations. The relation right now between Jordan and the U.S. has become much more multidimensional, but uh, relations with Israel continue to be one of the keystones of uh, these relationships. So within these kind of competing pushes and pulls, uh, we can expect from Jordan to definitely uh, downgrade diplomatic relations with uh, Israel. They will, I, I, I'm certain there will be withdrawal of ambassadors and the freezing of uh, the kind of non-essential uh, civilian uh, kind of relationships. But more importantly, and maybe more effectively, Jordan will also be engaged in uh, very uh, proactive diplomacy. And here Jordan is much more, Jordanian diplomacy is much more uh, agile and effective than uh, Palestinian diplomacy. Jordanians will work on uh, three uh, uh, dimensions. The core one will be to build an Arab coalition, and here they will be joined definitely by Egypt that will not take the lead, but will be part of this coalition, and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. We can expect Saudi Arabia to take the lead on this kind of, at least public, on this kind of diplomacy. Jordan is already reaching out to Europe and using its relations in, uh, in Europe to, again, build a coalition to uh, impose a European cost on this. And obviously, then we will move to the UN and things uh, of this sort. Jordan, as I said, will try to maintain a balance, but the balance uh, will be threatened from two directions. One direction is public opinion. And while the king and the, and the leadership of Jordan would want to kind of remain within certain uh, bounds and not overstep and create uh, too deep of a crisis, public opinion might actually run out of control given how uh, charged the, the emotions is. And the other constraint, given the really profound lack of trust between the king and primarily uh, Bibi Netanyahu, there are today no uh, high-level uh, crisis management channels between the two uh, countries. There was hope that uh, Gantz and Ashkenazi, because of their old relationship with Jordan in the army, might play that role. But as of yet, uh, this uh, has not happened. Finally, maybe a couple of words about uh, the Gulf. The Gulf here, and we really talk about, we really talk about uh, uh, UAE, Saudi Arabia, and to some extent Bahrain. Qatar has its own very... Uh, strange relationship with Israel that goes through Gaza. Um, but for for uh, the moderate Gulf uh, states, I think the, the op-ed of Ambassador Taiba really laid out uh, the, the Gulf position. Uh, there is a genuine interest in uh, opening up with Israel. Uh, some uh, Gulf countries have been more forthcoming. UAE, Bahrain have been more public. Uh, Saudi has been messaging, uh, signaling in that direction. Yet, there is uh, also a sense that annexation uh, is crossing uh, a line. By the way, this is a message that has been sent by uh, uh, Gulf officials for a while now. You know, uh, yes, Ambassador Otaiba's uh, uh, op-ed garnered a lot of interest because it was groundbreaking and it was uh, a very significant move because it was published in Israel. But the message was uh, sent by uh, high-level high, uh, Emirati officials 
شيخ عبد الله بن زايد يسترداي شيخ محمد بن زايد tweeted to this effect the Saudi cabinet in almost every meeting it had including this week's meeting chaired by the king made its position clear so what we would expect from the Gulf in this particular in this if annexation were to happen on the one hand I don't think they will sacrifice the key strategic interests that they have in the relation with Israel which is primarily security oriented. But I suspect every other aspect of the relationship, diplomatic, civilian, some of these kind of budding uh, openings that we're seeing, inviting Israeli ministers to come and attend this or that, or go to a tour of Sheikh Zayed Bosque, things of this sort, this will be an end of them for the foreseeable uh, future uh, for these countries. Um, partly because of their domestic uh, constraints, partly because of, as David mentioned, fear of what uh, Qatari, Turkish, and uh, Iranian media will agitate, and partly because for some of these leaders, this is actually an issue that continues to resonate with them on a personal uh, individual level. So to conclude, I would say, you know, for those who are warning that after annexation, the day after annexation, the sky will fall, I doubt it. At the end of the day, there are too many deep strategic interests and everyone today, given how the whole instability in the region, no one wants to see more um, active conflict. But for those who are saying that annexation will come with no cost, that is also uh, inaccurate. And I think what we will see with the Arab countries, each in its own way and based on its own set of interests and uh, tools, we will see an attempt to show that this will come with a price. And uh, the more uh, that we, uh, I hope, the more uh, that, that these kind of messages will come before annexation, because we don't want to find ourselves after annexation with a situation where everyone's hand is, for, is forced into a situation that might uh, spin out of control. With this, thank you, Rob, and uh, the microphone's back to you. Thank you very much, Khaif. Um, very useful. Uh, all right, Dana, uh, the floor is yours. Dana. What I'm going to talk about is the political landscape as the possibility of Israeli annexation looms closer and closer. So while a lot of the media focuses on or retweets what members of Congress do say or do not say, I think um, it's also important to look at the votes that they have taken, given that this is the legislative branch of the U.S. government. So I'd like to briefly revisit the language of recent House and Senate resolutions, uh, one that didn't pass and one that did, as good examples of how the political landscape on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and where U.S. policy has been, should be, is going, has shifted over the course of the most recent couple years. You all will recall that the U.S. abstained in December 2016 at the Security Council for the vote on U.N. Resolution 2334, which called Israeli settlement construction a flagrant violation of international law. What got less attention, or many people have forgotten, is that less than a month later, the Senate debated Senate Resolution 6. Now, this resolution did not pass, but I think it's still worth revisiting a few key phrases from that bill text, which at the time enjoyed broad bipartisan support. For example, and I quote, objecting to all efforts that undermine direct negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians, long-standing U.S. policy for direct bilateral negotiations without preconditions for a sustainable two-state solution, efforts to oppose a solution or parameters for a solution will make negotiations more difficult, and finally, U.S. policy is for a sustainable, just, and secure two-state solution. 
So this resolution gained 78 out of 100 co-sponsors in the Senate, meaning the majority of the Senate, Republican and Democrats, stood together in support of this resolution. So at the time, which is early 2017, this was the baseline bipartisan consensus. There were no issues around stating U.S. policy for a two-state solution, that negotiations should be direct and bilateral, that preconditions should not be imposed from the outside, et cetera. Now consider... House Resolution uh, 326, which passed the House in December. Here are a few key phrases from that bill. And I quote, the United States remains unwavering in its commitment to help Israel address the myriad challenges it faces, including terrorism, regional instability, horrifying violence in neighboring states and hostile regimes that call for its destruction. Presidents of the United States from both political parties and Israeli prime ministers have supported reaching a two-state solution. The U.S. discourages steps by either side that would put a peaceful end to the conflict further out of reach, including unilateral annexation of territory or efforts to achieve Palestinian statehood status outside the framework of negotiations with Israel. This resolution passed with 266 votes, so it passed the House of Representatives the majority of Democrats, and only five Republicans. So now the notion that the U.S. supports a two-state outcome and opposes unilateral actions outside the context of direct negotiations appear to no longer be the baseline, no longer the centrist bipartisan position. And so in my view, these two resolutions over the course of only two years demonstrate the shift from what used to be a centrist bipartisan position and support of direct negotiations for a two-state outcome. Shows how the debate has shifted. The legislative record is pretty clear on this. So taking this as a framework for thinking about the Hill and what is or is not coming out of Congress today, the scene actually gets more complicated as the possibility of Israeli annexation gets more real. On the Senate side, on the Democratic side of the Senate, there has been no coalescing around a key message or set of threats regarding the stakes of annexation or what it might mean for the U.S.-Israel relationship. Some joined in sending a letter to Netanyahu and Gantz. Many other senators have pursued their own letters or simply chosen to convey their concerns privately. Sometimes those concerns are addressed to U.S. officials. Sometimes they're addressed to Israeli officials. But the bottom line is it's a mixed scene. There is no collective action. Um, easy for those in Israel in support of annexation to conclude that there might be no long-term impact to the decision to go ahead and annex. On the Republican side, only one senator has specifically spoken up about the possibility of annexation, and it was Ted Cruz, who tweeted that Israel should make this decision for itself and that the United States should should no longer be dictating to Israel what it should or shouldn't do. However, Consider that Republicans and Democrats did work together in a bipartisan way when they sent a letter in May to Secretary Pompeo expressing concerns about ICC action against Israel. In this case, the language of a bipartisan letter, consider this, and I quote, establishing the boundaries of any future Palestinian state is a political decision that must be determined through negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians. In this case, last month, this letter was signed by 69 current senators, so Republican and Democrat again. So if it's specifically about annexation, you see partisanship, 
But in the context of ICC action, Republicans and Democrats on the Hill can still come together and express concern. And then you see a return to that baseline language about direct negotiations and um, opposition to the imposition of outside parameters or solutions. On the House side, there's actually some action right now. There's new momentum behind a letter which articulates the strategic and security rationale against unilateral annexation. It's being circulated among the Democratic caucus on the House side. But it's very clear in reiterating that House Democrats are committed partners in supporting and protecting the special U.S.-Israel relationship. So if this letter gains the majority of House Democrats or even the entire caucus, it is a good indicator that even if there are agreement, disagreements about the implications of annexation, there's still strong commitment, especially on the Democratic side, to a special and vibrant U.S.-Israel relationship. So what does this all mean? It means that Congress is not speaking in a coherent way. It's easy to take away that there's mixed messages. Um, U.S. policy for direct negotiations for a two-state solution is reiterated as a bipartisan position, sometimes, not all the times. Is it a shift? Probably, because it's not all the time. Um, is there going to be a strong, coherent signal from the Hill or even from all Democrats on the Senate and House side warning against annexation? No. And in terms of a bipartisan message and when Congress is able to act in a bipartisan way is when it matters and when either foreign governments or the executive branch or the White House really needs to pay attention. It's just not gonna happen in, in this case. This issue of Israeli annexation is not an issue that is animating the Republican party. And so it was, it's easy to conclude for those in the camp in Israel in support of annexation that this is not going to be a watershed moment, certainly not a rupture in the U.S.-Israel relationship, and that threats that it is are not credible. So, like Gates said, there may not be a rupture tomorrow, but there are implications over the medium to long term. So from the Hill perspective, I'll just conclude uh, with a few observations. Again, it is easy, I think, for those in Israel in support of annexation to ignore warnings from select groupings on the Hill because it is not organized around one set of messages or one set of threats. But I do see implications down the road that are very real and um, should be received as so, especially by those in the security camp in Israel. So again, there are some potential long-term prices. There are already loud voices on the right and the left in the Hill talking about how we end forever wars, how we end an overinvestment of the United States in the Middle East. If you think about all of these big COVID-19 relief packages that have passed Congress, less than 1% has been, has been appropriated in any of these packages for U.S. assistance abroad. And in a post-COVID world, as governments look to recover both economically and from the public health crisis, it is easy to see that there will be less domestic appetite for big expenditures abroad as governments and societies focus inward. In that context, again, there's going to be less focus on U.S. leadership in the Middle East, a robust, a robust U.S. presence in the Middle East, et cetera. And layer on top of that, that the big, the big theme of US uh, in the US security, national security space right now is great power competition, that the United States should not be mired in conflicts in the Middle East because the big strategic level threats to us 
are from China and Russia. So again, post-COVID relief, great power competition, already uh, commonalities on the right and left arguing against U.S. military entanglements in the Middle East. All of these trends, in my view, layer on top of each other a foundation upon which there is a potential erosion of that longstanding bipartisan support for a strong U.S.-Israel relationship. So one of the arguments for a strong U.S. and active U.S. presence in the Middle East has always been about the U.S.-Israel strategic partnership. As all of these trends converge, and based on what happens in the context of annexation, I think that they could merge in a way that, again, undermines or erodes not only the the U.S.-Israel relationship, but debates the tools and the policies and the programs that keep it vibrant and keep it moving going forward. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. Thank you very much, Dana. Um, All right. We're going to turn now to Dennis, and then we'll open this up for a series of uh, questions that I've been uh, that have been flooding into my email box. So, uh, Dennis, the floor is yours. Not surprisingly, my colleagues have done, I think, a, a very good job of painting with a broad brush uh, both the context and some of the implications of annexation. What I want to do is kind of try to put all of this into a perspective and, and at the end even offer some observations on not just the cost, but are there any ways to minimize some of the costs? Well, let me start with picking up with something that, that David said. Uh, David talked a little bit about the mixed messaging coming out of the administration. I want to be a little bit more explicit than he was. In effect, what you're seeing is the Jared Kushner has approached the issue of the Trump plan from the perspective that it is, and he and, and uh, the people who work with him describe it as a holistic plan. It's not an annexation plan. He looks at annexation as a lever to try to move Palestinian behavior, not as an end in itself. David Friedman, our ambassador to Israel, has treated annexation much more as an end in itself. And until yesterday, he was actually trying to be a mediator between Netanyahu and Ganson Ashkenazi uh, because, as David said, the administration's position is Israel has to have a, a common approach on this before they can get the green light from the administration. Now, Friedman pulled out yesterday, and basically the message now is, when you guys have agreed to something, come back to us. Uh, All along, even as this has been proceeding, the White House has also been sending a message to the Palestinians. They don't have direct ties to Abu Mazen, but there are people who are intermediaries, some are Palestinians, some are not, who are conveying the following message, and I can say because I hear it, they repeat it back to me, meaning... Palestinians repeated back to me, uh, that what they're hearing very explicitly is, if you will just be willing to talk to us, engage with us on the basis of the Trump plan, there'll be no annexation. Again, showing this is a lever, it's not an end in itself. The problem, of course, is that for Abu Mazen, Abu Mazen has rejected in its totality. He doesn't want to even suggest that there's anything in it that could be legitimate. So, he's not going to engage. He's certainly not going to re-engage and he's not going to talk on the basis of the Trump plan. Abu Mazen for a long time has specialized in climbing up trees. He almost always forgets to bring a ladder because he never knows how to extricate himself from that position. And he always counts on being rescued. The problem right now is there really aren't too many out there who can rescue him uh, and the risks he runs. And I think that Rafe was pointing out 
uh, I think are, are quite real, but those risks also end up having an effect on the Israelis as well. And what you heard, I think, from, from David and from Wraith, and to, to some extent also, uh, I think, from Dana, less on the Congress and more on longer-term strategic trends and how it could affect Israel, annexation is a risk. Uh, no matter how you slice it, it is a risk. And Bibi Netanyahu, while he is someone when it comes to domestic politics, not only has no peer, but there are very few things, he's really a no holds barred politician, that's not the way he's approached national security issues. If you look throughout his tenure, he has always been cautious, even risk averse on national security issues. So how do we explain that Bibi Netanyahu has historically been risk averse, seems so determined to press ahead with annexation, uh, even though it's pretty clear that there are a set of risks? I think there are a couple of explanations. One is he truly sees this as a historic moment. When I was negotiating with him way back in, the, in his first tenure as prime minister, one night when we were doing the Hebron Accord, around midnight in his office, just the two of us, he said to me, I'm going to do what Ben Gurion did. And knowing that he's really a product of the revisionist movement, which to say they didn't like Ben Gurion would be an understatement, I reflexively said to him, no, you mean Begin. And he goes, no, 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 no. Ben Gurion did the big stuff. You know, he sees himself right now doing the big stuff. What is the big stuff? Bibi believes that with Trump and the ability to annex the territory allotted to Israel in the Trump plan, he believes that he's able to create a new baseline. He's able to ensure the territories that he regards as being critical to Israel's security will always be part of Israel, number one. He believes that he will transform what has been the kind of international baseline on this issue that is basically the June 467 lines or roughly 100% of the West Bank. He believes a new baseline that he can create with annexation is 70% of, of the West Bank. And that will put Israel in a fundamentally different position. He will have contributed something huge to Israel's long-term well-being. And the reason it's not only a unique moment is because he also believes he doesn't buy the story on the risks. He looks at the depiction of risk and he says, oh, we were warned about how there was going to be violence if, uh, if Trump moved on the embassy or on Jerusalem. Nothing happened. The same thing if he, if he went ahead and recognized sovereignty in the Golan Heights. Nothing happened. The same thing with the Trump plan. That was going to unleash a reaction. Nothing happened. So he looks at that and says, nothing happened there. All the Cassandra-like warnings are overblown. Yeah, there'll be harsh criticism. The Europeans will be unhappy, but they won't impose sanctions because they won't have a consensus. Jordan depends not just on that, but Jordan depends on $1.5 billion a year from the Trump administration. It's not going to abrogate the peace treaty because it could put that at risk. The Gulf states and the others who we do things very privately under the table on security, it's not a favor they're doing to us. It's something that reflects their interests. So their fundamental fears of Iran and of the Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda not going to disappear. So even with the U.S. and the threats about, oh, what's going to happen in the U.S. relationship, let's assume Joe Biden wins. He's known Joe Biden for a long time. He knows Joe Biden's an instinctive friend of Israel. And his attitude is, even if Biden said he's opposed to it, you know, this will be done well before he becomes president. You know, I'll be able to manage it with him. So BBC is a, a unique moment in terms of gains, and he doesn't see the kind of risks and costs that David was outlining in his presentation that some are raising within Israel. 
Now, my own view is that his view of the gains, unfortunately, is not very real. I say that because you only establish an international baseline if, in fact, everybody is prepared to adjust to it. Now, maybe if Trump has a second term, there's more of an impulse to adjust to it. But if Trump doesn't have a second term, no one else internationally of any meaning is going to recognize this new baseline. And if the and if Joe Biden comes in and says, I was opposed to it, I still believe in the two-state outcome, I want negotiations, I saw you know, what, what Trump did was antithetical to achieving that, so we're not recognizing that as a baseline. Not only will that not be a baseline from that standpoint, but in Europe, while the EU won't impose sanctions, individual European states are very likely to recognize the Palestinian state in response to annexation, and they'll recognize it on the basis of the 1967 borders. Rather than creating a new baseline, you will be cementing the old baseline with annexation. And in some respects, that old baseline is worse than what has been created over the last number of years, which was the concept of 67 and mutually agreed swaps. That meant settlement blocks were absorbed into Israel and then there was compensation. What that meant is June 4, 67 wasn't the border. That was a border that had to be adjusted. But these European states will be recognizing a Palestinian state on the basis of June 4, 67, not on the basis of blocks and swaps. So even from the standpoint of what the prime minister thinks he's going to gain, I think there is a fundamental reason to question it. On the costs, uh, I wanna just add I'll say one and a half points to what I've heard. Uh, a half a point on what, uh, on what Dana was saying. Dana was focused primarily uh, on the Congress, which is understandable. But there's also, you have to think about what the domestic consequences are gonna be here in terms of bipartisanship. Annexation will deepen the divisions within the Democratic Party. It will play to the strengths uh, of those in the left wing of the party who already have a narrative that looks at Israel increasingly as a victimizer. Uh, annexation will feed the delegitimization movement. Israel has had a position in the West Bank that even though it's criticized because of settlement activity, generally is seen as being legitimate because it's based on Israel being there pending negotiations. When Israel annexes, it calls into question that legitimate basis. When Israel annexes, in addition to that, it is itself violating one of the central premises of Oslo, which again, will raise questions about what Israel is doing. That central premise was neither side will alter the ultimate political status of the territory. When Israel goes ahead in the nexus, it has done precisely that. Palestinians used to always say, when Israel is building settlements, they're altering the status. They knew better. They knew what the negotiating history was. The negotiating history on this line explicitly referred to what's the ultimate status, meaning will Israel have sovereignty? Will the Palestinians have sovereignty? Here, Israel is taking a unilateral step that violates that fundamental premise, and it will undercut much of Israel's position and the legitimacy of Israel's position internationally and will foster a, a significant advance of the delegitimization movement. Okay, so given all that, uh, and given the fact that we, you know, today it was reported that Netanyahu actually presented to Gantz and Ashkenazi four different scenarios uh, for what could be annexation, ranging from a very small amount to the full 30% of the Trump plan. Let's assume 
that he remains determined to go ahead with annexation. Uh, and that Gantz and Ashkenazi, because they're concerned about the destabilizing effects of this, along, and along each of the dimensions that you've heard, whether it's with the consequence potentially for the Palestinian Authority, whether it's with Jordan, whether it's with the Gulf states, whether it's with the United States, they want to minimize this uh, and, they, and they want to, let's say, they want to do it only to those areas in Israel uh, that there is a very broad consensus within the country it should remain part of Israel. Could be something like Gush Etzion and Malay Adamim to take the, the smallest amount that they would likely annex. Now that will still have a problem. That will still create a problem on the legitimacy angle that I was just mentioning. That doesn't go away. Uh, and that needs to be considered before they make even this kind of a final decision. But if they were looking for ways to try to minimize the consequence uh, with everyone, uh, they could do the following. They could announce a minimalist approach along the lines I said, and they could say in every peace proposal that's been made up until now, these areas that we've identified, we're going to be part of Israel in any outcome. We are doing this. We are not walking away from diplomacy. We are not walking away from negotiations. We want negotiations. We are doing this in a way that is fully consistent with a two-state outcome. Uh, we are committed to such an outcome. It's true that then now I wasn't saying these kinds of things, but if, if you're looking for a way to reduce the consequence and the cost associated with annexation, something like this would have to be said. There are other things that could be said as well. Uh, and there are other things that could be done as well. Uh, in addition to restating a commitment to the two-state outcome, uh, one of the things that could in fact be said, uh, or even not just said, but could be done, to show their good faith in terms of a commitment to negotiations, they could say, we are extending Israeli law and administration to these areas, but recall that Menachem Begin extended Israeli law and administration to the Golan Heights in December of 1981. And that didn't preclude three prime ministers to negotiate on the future, the territorial future of the Golan Heights, including, by the way, Prime Minister Netanyahu. They could add this point and they could take one more step. They could also take the step of saying, okay, we're extending our Israeli law and administration to these areas. They are minimal, but we're also going to do something for the Palestinians at the same time. We are going to take a comparable percentage from Area C, which is exclusively under Israeli control, and that's going to be transferred to the Palestinians in Area B, where they won't have total control like in Area A, but they'll have responsibility for uh, planning and zoning, and they'll have responsibility for law and order. So in a sense, what we're doing, yes, we're taking one thing, but we're also providing something to the Palestinians. If you took those three kinds of steps, meaning you frame a minimalist approach, I think the potential to reduce the costs would be there. Will it reduce all the costs? I don't think so, because I think there still is this question of moving and violating what is one of the key premises of, of the Oslo Accords. Nonetheless, with the right kind of framing, and I'd add one last point before I conclude, this would need to be prepared in advance on, you know, I, you'd have to do diplomacy. You'd have to, Israel would quietly have to go to the Europeans and say, we're prepared to do these kinds of things. They would quietly have to go to the Arabs and saying, we're doing this kind of thing. They could certainly communicate to the Palestinians directly and indirectly. I don't think it would dramatically change the Palestinian position for the reasons that Ray said, and also what I said about Abu Mazen, who is 
is not inclined to climb down the tree. Uh, but if you're looking for a way, if it becomes clear that in the end, some annexation is going to be done, if you want to try to minimize the consequences of it uh, and the uncertainties related to it, uh, these are some of the steps you could take. All right. Very good. Thank you very much, Dennis. Um, all right. So we've heard uh, from our four uh, speakers. We're now going to take about 20 minutes for for discussion. I have lots of questions that have been posed to me. Let me first go to, to David, um, ask you the um, to take a look at the question of limited annexation, um, uh, less than the full 30 percent that, uh, um, uh, you know, originally allotted in the the Trump peace plan to Israel, without going into all the gory details, but to look at the political context, is it, um, uh, is it in your view, from the perspective of Netanyahu, is it adv advantageous to do um, pieces of annexation, such as Dennis outlined, or is it better to say, accede to uh, an alternative request from say the Trump administration to uh, to postpone this entire issue after, until after the um, the election, perhaps in compensation, uh, getting a, a meeting with um, with the president and and other Arab officials that might uh, that might have its own uh, political benefits. What, what what is the political calculus here? Look, I tend to think that Netanyahu has put all his eggs in the Trump basket. You know, a one sentence tweet from Donald Trump saying. Basically, what Bibi Netanyahu has done for the last three elections in Israel, Israel's had a lot of elections, as we all know, in the last 15 months. Bibi said, if you only elect me, we'll deal with this later. And I wonder if Donald Trump does the same thing to him. Uh, what if his people say, listen, you don't really gain much here politically in the United States. The evangelical community that will vote for you, uh, they will vote for you on other issues, the Supreme Court. You are, you know, you've shown yourself on Israel, on the embassy and the Golan and all these other things. You know, they don't focus on all the maps in such uh, fine detail. So it's unclear if he gets any electoral benefit from this. So it would be easy for him to say, I'll deal with this later. You know, vote for me for a second term. And then he's always got that twilight zone anyway, between the November election and the inauguration, even if he loses too. So you know, there, there are options here. And I tend to think if Trump comes down on one option, Netanyahu is not going to do what the settlers want and uh, go independently. They said, look, when you remember what Begin did, what he did in 81, uh, and, and with Jerusalem also, the United States didn't bless that, but Israel did it because they felt it was right. So do it again, defy Trump. I noticed when they said that to him, and they also threw in a sense that he's no friend of Israel, as soon as I saw this, not just in Hebrew, but when I saw this in English, I, I said to myself, the news cycle will not go for an hour uh, until Netanyahu himself issues a correction, because uh, he doesn't want an, you know, any daylight between himself and the Trump administration. So in, with, faced with listening to what the settlers want, which are part of his base, but uh, versus veering from Trump, if Trump says, I don't want to deal with this now, it's over for now. It's, it's deferred. And, um, you know, just if I could, Rob, pick up on this for one second. And, you know, no one, if you notice of all of our presentations, because I can imagine people in the chat rooms and things like that or on Facebook Live saying, oh, we heard all this about violence. None of us said there'll be violence the next day. Not one of us, of the four of us. 
Uh, our concern are more the slow burn issues. And uh, we're all concerned about the, you know, the collapse of the PA, long-term relations with Jordan, instability in Jordan, but no one is talking about you know, violence tomorrow morning. And so I just wanna be sure that our listeners or viewers watching this make that distinction. And by the way, I just wanna add one point to what Dennis said. This, this is a different issue than Begin 81 in the sense that you've got, um, the Golan is a, a relatively open area with very few settlers, not ideological. And um, the West Bank uh, settlers who get the, the okay to go forward, you know, outside the blocks, it's a, it's a different population. And they're in very close proximity with many, many Palestinians, uh, not just a few pe Druze people in the community. So a green light here, I think is different than the Golan. I think it's, it, it is more combustible, but none of us are talking about violence the next day. So I would urge anyone in the chat rooms not to assume that we are thinking that violence will break out. We're thinking about longer term effects for Israel. All right, um, Dennis, I have a number of questions that all coalesce around this type of theme. Um, why is this situation so different than so many other situations that we've heard in the past when the Israelis do something which observers suggest is provocative, that is going to, um, uh, uh, you know, the sky is going to fall and then the sky doesn't fall. Um, why is this so different than, you know, a massive settlement expansion? Why is this so different than, um, uh, than the Golan um, uh, 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 annexation? Why is this so different than all sorts of things? Um, uh, you, you, you've, you, you've heard this before. What makes yeah. this in a different category? Look, I would say there's two different responses. One, in the case of what Trump did on Jerusalem, on the Golan Heights and the Trump plan, these were not Israeli actions. These were American reactions. So there will be an impulse in the region to respond against the Israelis. Responding against Trump means you put your potential relations with the United States at risk. So you're not gonna do that. So first understand the distinction between what is an American action and what is an Israeli action. The second thing on on settlement activity, in the end, the Israelis at the same time, even as they expanded settlement, says we're prepared to negotiate the future of the territory. This is a statement that says, by the way, we're not. Uh, or even if they say, yeah, we'll still negotiate, the image is going to be, no, you've decided to impose. Now, when you impose, that requires a response. And again, the nature of the response can take lots of different forms. I would just say the deeper worry I have uh, as someone who has been fighting the delegitimization movement for so long, this is the one single move Israel can take that will raise questions in a much broader way than has been the case up until now in a way that settlements haven't. People have been critical of settlement activity, but as long as Israel could say, we are committed to negotiating the ultimate status of the, of the territory. Uh, and and when the Palestinians won't come to the table, you know, it's hard for us. We can't negotiate by ourselves. So here, Israel takes a, a unilateral step. Uh, by the way, one of the things that David said that's so important in terms of answer, answering this question, and their embrace of the Trump plan is at best ambiguous. It is ironic that Blue White is saying, we support the Trump plan. And in the meantime, Bibi says, well, it's not a state. They can go and say there's not a state. 
And all the people, David cited all the people who are most loyal to him, basically saying, yeah, we're, not, we're not buying the Trump plan. So here, you're, you're, you are taking away even the fiction that Israel is committed to negotiating an outcome which legitimized Israel's position in the West Bank. One of my concerns is Israel controls the territory today. And nobody ultimately is really pressing to change that reality. The irony is Israel is now going to take a step that, in truth, is mostly going to be symbolic. It only doesn't become symbolic if the PA collapses, in which case Israel then has to assume the responsibility for all the Palestinians there. Uh, and in fact, it weakens, in my mind, it weakens its position, opens itself up to a level of criticism that is much more likely to stick than what we've seen before. Okay, Dana, let me ask you um, a number of questions about the uh, domestic political implications of some of this. Um, uh, first, you, you, uh, in your presentation, you highlighted sort of the um, generally, well, first the move on what is a, uh, what was a bipartisan view just a couple of years ago and how that has shifted, um, uh, uh, except on the issue of the ICC where the bipartisan view still um, still predominates. Um, uh, but you said that, you know, Democrats, many of them are going their own way, different letters, different initiatives. Um, there will be one Democrat who will speak for the party before long, and that is their nominee. And he will approve a platform, um, or at least there will be a vigorous debate about it, but it's unlikely to be a platform that is approved um, against his will. Um, how do you think that entire process is shaping up? What have we heard from the nominee and what haven't we heard from the nominee um, that, uh, that others will read into as being um, uh, very significant? Thanks for that question, Rob. So what we haven't heard from the nominee is a direct threat to, the, to his commitment to a strong, vibrant U.S.-Israel relationship if annexation proceeds unilaterally. I think there are camps within the Democratic Party right now, some of which are attempting to send a message against annexation writ large. And then as Dennis and David have laid out, there's different formulations, big annexation, annexation light, annexation with sprinkles, annexation with a few sweeteners. There's ways to do it that could mitigate the consequences. I think that there are discussions within the Democratic Party about how a potential Biden administration or how the DNC platform or how Democrats in elected positions in Congress right now may or may not message or respond based on how annexation proceeds or what it looks like. Is it big? Is it small? Et cetera. Um, so so uh, Vice President Biden has spoken at, at a few fundraisers and he has reiterated very clearly his, his commitment to the U.S.-Israel relationship, his commitment to a strong Israel that's able to defend herself. He's also expressed concern about unilateral actions that, that, would, that would greatly complicate the relationship down the road. There are pockets, and we heard this during the primary before Vice President Biden became the presumptive nominee, where there were questions about if annexation proceeds, would there be conditioning of security assistance to Israel? What you have not heard from Vice President Biden or any of the people that speak for him and his national security team a discussion about things like security assistance are on the table. Those are very good examples where right now 
his camp is not going there. And so again, there's this attempt to message about the implications and the problems that unilateral annexation would bring into US policy on Israel going forward. But at the same time, reiterating that baseline that the United States remains committed to a strong US-Israel relationship, that Israel's security is still a paramount interest for the United States um, and, and would be a priority for its policy in the Middle East. All right, so look, thank you. Um, uh, Raif, let me ask you, in, in, as you look at how various um, Arab parties are approaching this issue, um, uh, do you see them as uh, um, uh, 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 actively trying to affect the Israeli dynamic um, and using all the resources at their disposal to do this or covering themselves for uh, you know, protecting against um, uh, as we heard before, this Turkish cuttery, um, uh, 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 Iranian uh, critique, and, and just really ducking for cover. Who is really going out to change the dynamic, and who is merely sort of just protecting themselves? Um, it's a combination of both, as these things always are. Um, I think, for example, you know, the, the, the uh, op-ed that was published by uh, Ambassador Ateba, you know, that was costly. The uh, Emirates got a lot of heat for it. If you look at Jazeera, if you look at some of these kind of Muslim Brotherhood or Iranian-related uh, um, messaging uh, outlets, the Emiratis paid the price. But I think they genuinely felt that this is the kind of uh, uh, thing that will, you know, at least force the Israelis to factor this issue into the debate. Because I think part of their concern was that the diplomatic messages sent by their foreign minister, by their crown prince, and by the Saudis are not reaching the Israelis. And they felt that there was almost, uh, you know, willful ignorance of these kinds of issues. So I think for, for some like the Emiratis, etc., they really truly want to impact the Israeli uh, debate because they don't want to be in a position where annexation happens and they find themselves having to deal with a destabilizing reality. Similarly with the Jordanians, I think uh, the king coming out and saying what he uh, said, massive conflict, threatening the fundamentals of the relationship uh, publicly, he wants to be clear that, uh, you know, in advance, that uh, Jordan will not sit, uh, stand uh, still. So there's definitely this. And by the way, ducking for cover is not necessarily, you know, a negative thing. At the end of the day, um, they understand that they're working in a very conflictual uh, uh, environment. They're working in an environment where there are nefarious actors, Islamist, Iran, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they simply do not want to have another tool given to their uh, uh, to their detractors. At the end of the day, I think what all of these actors, whether it's Jordanians, the Emiratis, the Saudis, in their own kind of opaque way, and even the Egyptians, who have been largely quiet but uh, diplomatically very uh, clear. What they're trying to do is to basically avoid a situation where they would either have to give ammunition to their detractors, both external and domestic, or to put themselves in a position where they have to uh, threaten some of their fundamental interests that are inherent in the relations with Israel or in the relations with the United States. So I don't look at this as, you know, as kind of just pro forma. I think of it as an expression of a serious uh, anxiety. And one that I think many of those countries are not yet clear how they're going to react to, but they don't want to be in a position where they have to take, you know, uh, basically uh, a Sophie's choice of some sort. Okay, very good. Thank you for that literary reference there. Um, uh, so one last question for Dennis and then for David. 
Um, uh, uh, a lot of people are asking me, uh, so among the outside actors, um, uh, who actually has um, uh, relevance and influence over this? Who, who will have an impact? Uh, will it be the EU um, uh, and, and key uh, European states? Um, or is there already a, you know, a devaluation of what they're going to say because it's expected what many of them are going to say? Um, is there something that EU states um, can say and uh, that would have an impact? Um, will Arab states have an impact in, in what we've seen uh, in, in the calculus that uh, Netanyahu and Gantz and, uh, um, uh, are considering? Uh, we know that Trump will obviously have the most impact, but among these other actors, um, uh, 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 is there a fear? Um, is, is the idea that, uh, that this is a distraction from Iran? Is, will that actually have an impact on how uh, um, uh, Gantz and Netanyahu view this? Or have they all factored all those issues in already? And this is essentially a, you know, a, a U.S.-Israel discussion. Rob, let me just say, I think, I think it is essentially a U.S.-Israel discussion because there's only one condition in the coalition agreement uh, as it related to annexation. And one condition was that the, uh, that the U.S. had to agree. There was consideration on the impact on the peace treaties with Egypt and Jordan, but that was to be discussed. It wasn't a condition. There were, you know, raised the issue of stability, possible security implication, again, to be discussed, but not a condition. So the only condition is clearly the Trump administration. If the Trump administration, I think David said, if it was one tweet, game over. Uh, and you made a reference to, look, if Trump thought he could host a meeting with uh, with the Arabs and Bibi, uh, you know, that would be something that would look like a success in foreign policy. And for him, that would count for more than, uh, than the issue of annexation. So, they, you know, Anwar Sadat once said when he made peace with Israel because the U.S. had 99% of the cards. Okay, there is a little bit besides the U.S. out there. There are some things I think that the Arabs could do uh, in some ways that uh, that don't depend, for example, uh, on the U.S., at least explicitly. Um, I think one thing they could do does relate to Iran. If there was a clear communication that they, you know, if, if they were to say to Bibi on their own, uh, we're prepared to take certain normalization steps with you in terms of how we work together vis-a-vis -vis Iran, even publicly. Um, that would, but but our price is no annexation. Uh, <coughs> I can't see, I can't see the EU. I can see things that they could do. I just can't see that they would actually do them. I mean, if they could come to to Bibi and basically say, "Look, our position from now on on the Palestinians is going to be different. We're going to be publicly critical of the Palestinians, provided when for the things they do on incitement, you know, for their unwillingness to negotiate." We're going to hold them accountable publicly, not just privately. But we can't do that if you annex. That might affect Bibi. So I think the point is there are things that could be done, but they're still more along the margins than in terms of if the U.S. Uh, were to make the decision. Uh, I think that's, that's still the key affecting this administration. And I, I said at the outset, outside of David Friedman, it does not look like the White House is enthusiastic about annexation. 
So if there's something in it for them, they might yet make that decision to say no. All right, very good. Um, David, David, we're gonna uh, close with you with, um, with, with these uh, twin uh, questions. Um, one, um, uh, although you said earlier that it's generally a symbolic uh, measure, um, uh, uh, one questioner asks, doesn't this, uh, wouldn't annexation also trigger uh, the referendum law that could have very practical impact on the future of, uh, of peacemaking, if you could shed some light on that. And then um, uh, you did say in your presentation about, you referred to some of the po domestic Israeli political uh, factors and the, the, uh, the imbalance between Likud and blue and white at the moment. Um, what is the potential that the outcome of all this is, God forbid, um, another Israeli election? Yeah, oh my God. Again, God forbid you're right. Um, look, on the referendum law, I think it's an important question. Uh, no one in the media has focused in Israel or the United States on the fact that the Trump plan calls for swap areas, that areas under sovereign Israel that would go to the Palestinian. If there was a Knesset vote on the Trump plan, uh, there would in theory need to be 80 out of 120, and the Israelis can't even get to agree if it's daylight outside to get 80 people on that, I think. Um, so that hasn't even been discussed at all. So it's a very good question. In terms of once the area is sovereign, then in, in theory, you would need 80 to, to revert it back. Now you could, I've checked with a lot of legal experts, you could have 61 to amend the law, uh, so to change it. But I think it would be politically very hard to do, but technically it would be feasible, but it's certainly a major complication that it's good you, that you asked that question. And on the idea of a fourth election, you know, God forbid uh, that, look, I think it's used by each side to try to tell their base that we're willing to go to the mat on this issue. The truth is with Corona and with a million Israelis unemployed, I don't know if, if you know, if that threat is, is something uh, you could take uh, to the bank. I'll, I'll just add on, on, on Dennis's thing, what he just said about it's all of the U.S. having 99% quoting Sadat, I would even sharpen that and say, I think it's, it's one guy at the center that is Kushner, because all the roads seem to go through him at, at this point uh, to Trump. The, the American reelection, the issue of dealing with Israel, uh, you know, the, the legacy of his peace plan. So right now, until now, Bibi's assumed he has uh, an open check with the Trump administration. What seems like now is that Kushner's approach is there's a co-signer to that check, and that check is is Gantz, and uh, it's and it's not going to be as easy as he thought. So we shall see. Stay tuned. All right, fascinating. Well, I want to thank all of you. These were really insightful presentations about a complicated topic, a topic which um, which we are devoting considerable um, effort to uh, analyzing and offering. Uh, what I like to think anyway are constructive ideas here at the Washington Institute. Please do check our website for essays by my colleagues, um, Policy Watch essays, op-eds, um, uh, and my own uh, contribution in a policy note titled Wrestling with Annexation. Thank you, uh, David, Raith, Dana, and Dennis. Thank you all for participating in this policy forum. This has been Middle East Policycast from the Washington Institute. Production assistance this week from Corey Francis. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute 
and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Middle East PolicyCast. Cast.